Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, actually taping today in lovely St. Louis. Came down to visit my dad and see some old buddies. Had a great dinner last night with Gary and Steve and uh, uh, hanging out with my buddy Mark today and tomorrow. Get to see my brothers. And uh, it's always nice to get down here every now and then. We know St. Louis is a big dead town. And uh, so when I come here, I don't really feel that much different. And then uh, it's a great place to tape the show. And then my dad gets to see that I'm really doing something. So uh, nice to be here today. We've got uh, some great stuff lined up. We've got a wonderful concert that we're going to feature from July 10th, 1987 at JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And let's dive right in. from the first set of July 10th, 1987 in JFK Stadium. Now, the interesting thing about this show is that this was part of the July 87 tour with Dylan and the Dead. So uh, they would come out and uh, the Dead would play a set, just one set and kind of an extended set, a couple of hours. And then uh, there'd be a break and then Dylan would come out with the Dead actually backing him. And uh, it's, it's, it was wonderful concerts, and uh, they, they, it was a great live album that came out of it. Uh, but that happened on July 10th, so uh, I figured today would be a great day to dive into this. We're going to mostly be featuring uh, music uh, from the from the Dylan set, but I figured you know we got to get at least one dead song in, and this is an exceptionally great version of this song. Go through the book and break every single break each and every law. Uh, you know, it's another great Barlow lyric, uh, you know, that Bob brings to the table in his music. Uh, obviously, uh, Miracle was released as part of Shakedown Street back in November of 1978. Always a high energy tune. And uh, this may be the highlight of of the dead uh, single set at this show. Um, but, you know, you can go back and listen and, and say for yourself. But uh, I Need a Miracle is one of those songs that when you hear it, it, it it's, it's very catchy and, and it just right away. In fact, I can recall... I, Probably should have looked up the date, but didn't, counting on my sharp memory to get me there. Sometime in 76 or 77, maybe even 78, because that's when the album came out. Uh, the Dead were uh, the musical group on Saturday Night Live. And uh, they played two songs, and this was one of the songs they played. And back then, uh, you know, Saturday Night Live was new and exciting and, you know, John Belushi and all those kind of guys. And so we, we never missed it. It was must-see TV. And I specifically remember seeing The Dead singing this song, uh, because at that point in time, my my background and knowledge on the dead wasn't great. The little bit I knew about them uh, made it seem like they were just kind of these, uh, you know, old dinosaurs just playing this music forever. And here they were on stage, you know, really ripping it up. And I thought, wow, okay, that's kind of cool. Still took a few more years before uh, I managed to find my way onto the bus. But, uh, you know, it was just one of those songs that really stands out. And sometimes people could say, oh, I get tired of hearing of it, hear it or whatever. And yeah, like any dead song, I suppose, because it's it's a song that was always, always, always part of their uh, repertoire from the time it came out with Shakedown Street until the end. And, uh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great Bobby song, and I really, really like it a lot and uh, thought that this would be a great way to kind of jump into things because we do have to get a little bit of Grateful Dead to set the mood. Now, for the rest of it, it's it's uh, it's a really, really interesting situation. The show was in Philadelphia at JFK Stadium. There's JFK in Philly and RFK in D.C., uh, JFK was just this huge, uh, monolith of a building that held over a hundred thousand people. It opened in April of 1926. It was forever the hosting, uh, stadium for the army Navy football game, uh, probably for 
really for the whole time it was open, so close to 70 years. Uh, and here's a little bit of irony for everybody, right? The last live performance of any kind at JFK was The Grateful Dead on July 7th, 1989. Uh, they were touring with Bruce Hornsby and The Range, who opened for them. Uh, the, the time of the show, the stadium was literally falling apart with dangerous chemicals exposed, as well as electrical wiring, concrete crumbling. The only reason they allowed the show to be played was because the time the city inspector realized the extent of what was going on, it was on the day of the show and the stadium was already full of deadheads. Now, supposedly, uh, there was a very strict no smoking policy that day at the show that was being enforced because of the potential hazards. I can't confirm that one way or the other, but I'm going to guess that deadheads found a way to catch their buzz uh, during the show somehow or other. Uh, Again, a little more irony. The final tune the dead played that night uh, for their encore was Knocking on Heaven's Door. Very appropriate for a stadium uh, where this was its last hurrah. And even though it took a few years while uh, the city of Philly debated if they wanted to try and pour money into it to... Uh, renovated. Finally, on September 23rd, 1992, the stadium was demolished. It's over in the hole. Um, you know, you go to Philadelphia, there's this one stretch. It looks like a big parking lot with all the various sports stadiums in there. And one of the new ones they built on the spot. I'm not enough of a Philly sports fan to be able to tell you for sure. My good buddy, Steve Shane is, uh, but he's busy saving the world from uh, the evil forces that are trying to destroy the marijuana industry. So uh, maybe we'll get him on the show one day because he's just a riot and a half. So now in terms of my personal experiences with JFK, I was only there once and it was a very, very memorable, memorable visit. Uh, in September 1981, I was a sophomore at Michigan. My good buddy Harold and I uh, rented a car and uh, with a couple of our other buddies, um, uh, Murph and Tush, we, uh, yes, Tush, kind of like the Grange song, but he came first. Uh, we, we, we jumped in the car, uh, drove from Ann Arbor to Philadelphia, kind of figuring it out along the way. Kids, no ways back then. You had to actually read a map. And uh, when we got there, we met up with my good buddy Mills from Ithaca and Libby uh, from uh, Penn, who was hosting us for the weekend. And he had gotten us the tickets, thanks to Uncle Dave, uh, always a true rock and roll legend. And it, it was this was quite a show. This was... Um, for me, part of my gradual uh, foray into, you know, what we would call big boy rock and roll. I'd seen The Who as my senior year in high school, uh, freshman year of college. We, you know, we caught a few bands, but this was really big. We had never seen The Rolling Stones. Uh, everybody knows The Rolling Stones. Even then, you, know, you may not know a lot of other bands, but you know The Rolling Stones. And this was their Start Me Up tour. So huge, huge, you know, for them, uh, you know, a a new record, uh, a more, quote unquote, you know, modern day version, because, of course, by 1981, the Stones were considered, you know, a a more experienced, a veteran band who had been around for a while. Uh, So we all went with a little bit of trepidation, not really knowing quite what to expect. And um, we were all in the right state of mind. Uh, It all worked out very well. George Thorogood and the Delaware Destroyers came out. Uh, they opened the show, the, the band of one bourbon, one shot, and one beer fame. Love George Thorogood. Uh, saw him a few times. Again, good buddy Mikey introduced me to him. They were great. We, we just loved it. They came out and jammed for about 45 minutes. I'd never been at a concert with this large of a crowd. We were sitting on the side, you know, the football field, maybe about where the, if the stage was in the end zone, we were probably out around the 30-yard line. So, um, you know, in, in a stadium that big, they were, they were good enough seats, and uh, uh, we really had a good time. And then interestingly enough, uh, the second act on the bill was Journey, and at, at most they played for 30 minutes, and it, it, was, it was really kind of a weird scene because uh, they were right right at the height of their popularity. I mean, just exploding off the charts everywhere. Steve Perry was the vocalist, you know, with a very distinctive voice that you either loved or you hated. Um, but, you know, I, I'd listen to their songs on the radio. I had no problem with Journey per se, but we were all there to see uh, the Rolling Stones, and it wasn't just us. You had 102,000 people in the stadium, many of whom uh, fit the description of what you would think would be people who go to a a Rolling Stones concert, right? Hardcore guys, long hair, smoking weed. We want the Stones, get them out here. There may have been even a couple of bikers walking around on the field just because that's the Stones thing. And uh, Steve Perry was trying to thank the crowd for making Journey the number one band in America at that point. And it must have been difficult because everybody was booing, you know, and we want the Stones, we want the Stones. And finally, uh, you know, Journey played out of whatever their songs were at the time, something and thanked everybody and walked off the stage. And we all cheered and we're sitting around waiting and waiting and waiting uh, as excited as we could be. Uh, Finally out come the Rolling Stones and here they are. We're like, Oh my God, here's the Rolling Stones. This is, this is, this is rock and roll legends. These, this is royalty here. 
uh, you know, at the time it was, for me, it was still kind of hard to gauge where the dead were in all of that, but everybody knew about the Rolling Stones. They toured and they were selling out. It was like Taylor Swift, but long before Taylor Swift, they were selling out football stadiums everywhere and you couldn't find tickets. Um, so the Stones come out, they open with Under My Thumb, which was beautiful because I was familiar with the song, uh, but you know they, they didn't come out and like start with Jumpin' Jack Flash, right? They came out with just one of their standard tunes that they just played the hell out of. Uh, they released thousands and thousands and thousands of, of colored balloons that just went up floating into the sky. Uh, and we were all sitting there, of course, uh, uh, in our state of mind, just kind of watching them and catching the stones. Uh, my good buddy H was convinced well into the show that he could still see one or two of them. Uh, and Mikey and I had to kind of talk him down for a little bit. I know could have just been the shrooms. Um, we are at least most of us <laughs> were trying it out for the first time. Uh, still, this was still almost a year before my first dead show. Uh, but somehow psychedelic seemed very appropriate for a stone show made this one very memorable. And I'll never forget under my thumb, Mick Jagger starts singing, we all turned at each other, looked at each other and started laughing. We're like, oh my God, he sounds so old. 40 years later, Mick's still kicking ass, you know, uh, running around on the stage like a maniac. Who knew that they were barely into, you know, the first quarter of their of, of the tenure of this band uh, who is still going straight and defies all logic and explanation by being able to go out there and do it. But it was such an amazing concert, and such a great experience. We all had a great, great time thousands of stories about that, but that's not why you guys are here today. So we're going to blow right past that now that we've given a little bit of background on JFK Stadium in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, we get to hear the opening track, I uh, Need a Miracle. But as I say, the, the real uh, surprise of the, not surprise, the real high points of this show for many of us was the Dylan set, right? So on the one hand, we were annoyed that the dead were only playing one set. We wanted to hear more, uh, but once Dylan came out, and with the boys backing him, uh, it was a whole nother experience. And uh, so when the Dylan set starts, uh, they, they opened with what I thought was the best tune they could. And here it is. This may be every Deadhead's favorite Dylan tune. Jerry loved this tune. It was a staple of the JGB. Uh, it played at least every other show, uh, at the worst every third show, uh, and maybe more than that, depending on the mood he was in. It, it was typically played as a set closer, uh, and Jerry would just jam it out and uh, with the background singers and with uh, Melvin and John Kahn and everybody just playing it great. Uh, and I love that here, you know, this is what they opened the set with. It's, it, again, it's a well-known tune, both by the, the Deadheads, the Dylan fans love it, Jerry jamming hard. And Dylan, you can hear him feeling the energy. He, I love those excited vocals. He's, you can tell it's like, wow, I've played this tune a lot of times, but I've never played it like this before. Uh, it sounds like he's just having a great time up there. And okay, look, we can all say that Dylan's voice is not great, and, and we all know that. But number one, in, in 1987, it's a thousand percent stronger and better than it is now. And it's the dead backing him, right? It was one thing to hear Jerry play it, uh, you know, but the excitement, you know, for me always is, is that the Grateful Dead as a band never played Tangled Up in Blue, at least not that I'm aware of. 
Um, you know, so it took a minute or two, uh, you know, to adapt to this setup that it was, it was the dead playing it. It was Dylan singing and it just started off so strong, got everyone really comfortable and fired up the crowd. Uh, you know, there was mixed feelings in the crowd because everybody realized that, the, you know, the dead had only played one set, but here they were back in Dylan. Dylan's voice uh, may suck, but, you know, with the dead songs, uh, sound fresh and uh, lively in a manner not normally seen, you know, at your standard Dylan show, they just took it to a whole nother level. I will throw a caveat in there during the period of time when, when uh, Dylan had uh, Larry Campbell playing with him, uh, Larry Campbell was uh, just an incredible guitarist and, and he really rocked it out too. But, you know, Tangled Up in Blue, it really doesn't get any better than that, I don't think. Um, you know, for just, you know, hearing Jerry play it the way he always plays it. And, and I'll tell you one thing about it with, uh, with Dylan's voice and, and the way he sings it. He's very um, uh, free with his lyrics. You know, he's, he gets up there and he's getting excited. And even in that first verse, he's skipping around on the lyrics a little bit, you know, certainly not singing them as they're written down, which is okay. It's his song. He can sing it any way he wants but it makes you appreciate how, how well and how solid and how strong Jerry sounded all those times when he sang the song and really enunciated it. And, and that's how I learned the song, listening to Jerry sing it, you know, and I could pick up the lyrics from him, you know, again, back in the day before you could go to anything on the internet and find them. Um, and if you listen to Dylan sing the song, I know what he's saying because I know the lyrics. But if, if I wasn't already familiar with the lyrics, it might be hard uh, to pick it all up. But Tangled Up in Blue is just a great tune. Uh, it was from Dylan's Blood on the Tracks album uh, that was released on January 20th, 1975. Uh, certainly, you know, one of my absolutely favorite Dylan albums. Um, and certainly at that point in his career, I think, uh, by 75, he'd already been playing for, you know, close to 15 years publicly. And, uh, you know, I think that Blood on the Tracks really um, uh, symbolized a, a plateau in, in Dylan's career. Uh, where he was really going strong with with the rock tunes and everything, and uh, Tangled Up in Blue is just so wonderful. I could I could really listen to it all day long, and and you know it would make the perfect music music for an elevator, because uh, the song just goes on and on, and then you're sorry when it ends. Um, but great way to start, Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, everybody really really happy with that, and uh, and that's a great thing. Um, there's so much going on right now uh, out there, both in rock and roll and in marijuana. And um, I'm going to try to get to some of this stuff today. So staying on the music side for a minute here. Um, July 10th is also kind of a bittersweet day uh, for deadheads because on July 10th, 1986. So literally, <laughs> you know, one year before the show that we're listening to, Jerry slipped into a diabetic coma. Um you know, and everybody's always called it a diabetic coma. I'm not enough of a medical guy, even though my dad's a doctor and I have a lot of friends who are doctors to ever really, you know, fully come to grips with what happened to him and understand it. But I realized he had a bad diet. He was way overweight. He was using a lot of hard drugs. And my guess is that's a bad, bad combination for anybody. But this was significant. The Grateful Dead in 1986 were playing. They were strong. Uh, you know, I'd just seen him at the Greek theater in 85 and we'd already seen him a couple of times on the spring tour of 86. And, you know, for us, we, we, we knew all of these musicians, famous rock and roll musicians had died, you know, back then, uh, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, you know, weren't the living legends that they are now by still being alive. And, you know, it wasn't uncommon, uh, during that period of time for celebrities, rock stars, um, we're dying, overdosing on drugs, just living, you know, not healthy lives and, uh, you know, and all of that. But the dead were going strong and we couldn't be more excited. And, you know, there was a sense of how lucky we were, right? The dead were still playing. Pigpen had died. Keith wasn't in the band anymore. But Bob and, and Jerry and, and Phil and the drummers, they were all out there doing their thing. And uh, in July of 86, I was probably, uh, you know, not just on the bus. I was sitting in the front row of the bus. You know, I, I had bought all in by that point. You know, I had seen uh, well over 30 or 40 shows going into going into the summer of 1986. And the highlight it would have been the highlight of my dead career, maybe forever, uh, that the dead had can't had, had planned and scheduled two shows for the Fox Theater in St. Louis uh, a few weeks later in the month. Um, right. We've, we've talked about the Fox theater and, uh, you know, in the late sixties and seventies, it was one of the dead's favorite theaters to play. They released their box set last year, listen to the river, uh, from shows all recorded, uh, during that period at the Fox, uh, but they hadn't played there since 1972. We've talked about how the Fox was about to be torn down and it got saved. And finally somebody rehabbed it and uh, they were going to start having shows again, 
but I never imagined, you know, they would ever bring the dead back, but yet here's what they were doing. It was even more significant for me because at that point, although I'd only been seeing the dead for about three and a half years, I had seen them on both coasts everywhere in the country, and I had never seen them in St. Louis. Uh, as it you know, ultimately would turn out, uh, I still didn't until July 1995 at the very end, uh, uh, fourth and third uh, to the end, uh, last shows before the final stuff up at Soldier Field. But here they were coming to the Fox Theater, uh, summer of 86. I had mail ordered. I got second row orchestra center seats, the best seats I ever received from mail order, although I didn't know it at the time and was ultimately a source of frustration that I couldn't I couldn't score those kind of tickets all the time. Years later, I learned from my good buddy Mitch that it really did. Va- there was a real value uh, in designing your envelopes and drawing their attention, which I never did because I was usually rushing to get my mail order in. And I thought, hey, they, they must know my name. I've bought so much. But in retrospect, Mitch had it right. And that was the way to go. Um, but in the meantime, I had these just amazing seats. Uh, my buddies were all coming in. My parents were out of town for the weekend. Uh, it, it just couldn't been, have been set up any better than that. Uh, and then Jerry got sick and that was that. And it was just, it was devastating for us. I remember actually my brother Jeff called me because he had heard it on the radio and I went running home, couldn't believe that it was true. No internet to check in on. So I was watching the, you know, Entertainment Tonight or whatever. And they made some comment about Jerry being in a coma. And of course, they weren't, they weren't rude about it, but there were some suggestions that, well, when you're a big fat rock and roll guy who does a lot of drugs kind of thing. And we were all just devastated. You know, at first I remember thinking, wow, is there any chance he could be ready in enough time to play the Fox in two weeks? And quickly realized that wasn't the case. Everybody, you know, canceled out um, and, you know, missed out on just absolute tremendous opportunity, uh, you know, to be able to see Jerry in a once in a lifetime setting with the band. Um, And I, you know, I always sit and wonder uh, how amazing that would have been and what kind of an experience it would have been. Uh, I sent back three of my tickets, two for each night for a refund. I held onto one of them because as I recall, the refund was not a significant amount. but even more to the point, I knew that years from now, people would be saying, oh, I had tickets to that show. And I would be able to prove that I had tickets. I had great seats. I still have that ticket stub. And I took it with me to the Fox Theater in 2010 when I saw Fish there, uh, just to remember what might have been. Um, but, you know, Jerry dropped and, and we all had to wait and see what the dead were going to do. And, you know, reports were very scattered and nothing was ever for certain, but ultimately Jerry survived. Uh, you know, he's talked about it in the dead documentaries and there's been articles written about it. He literally, you know, relearned the guitar, um, relearned all of the dead songs, not unlike what we heard uh, Judy and Andy talking about with Joni Mitchell after her illness and what she had to do to be able to come back. Uh, but, but Jerry did it and uh, the dead were back on stage by December 15th and uh, it played the New Year's shows and it was just absolutely amazing to us. And here we were a year later, nobody was thinking about that anymore, right? Jerry was back, he was strong, uh, he was really going at it hard. And, you know, for all of us, we, we just couldn't have been thrilled, more thrilled, uh, you know, to realize, uh, I, you know, maybe the, maybe the landmine, if you will, that we had kind of dodged there. Um, it, it was, we almost lost Jerry, but, but we didn't. And as a result, um, you know, we had this night uh, with the dead back in uh, Bob Dylan. And uh, for the next track, we're going to play. Listen to this because Jerry's going to blow you away. So the very first thing you should hear when you listen to this tune, because it's not necessarily my favorite Dylan tune, you know, it's a Dylan tune that I knew. And, uh, you know, I, I would say fell, you know, right in the middle of, of, of Bob Dylan stuff, 
but Jerry's playing pedal steel on it. And you could hear that. You, you hear it right away. You just hear that, that, that vibe coming up and you're like, is Jerry playing pedal steel? Is Jerry playing pedal steel? And sure enough, he was. And, uh, you know, that alone makes this song uh, worth noting and listening to. Uh, you can even hear the crowd at the very, very beginning. They start to, you know, get really excited and cheer. And uh, my impression is and it, it, not just because Dylan stepped up to the mic and started singing, uh, but that, you know, there's Jerry uh, doing pedal steel. It's just, uh, you know, for a deadhead, just one of those absolutely special things, because we, we've talked about Jerry and the pedal steel uh, back in the uh, early 70s. He was touring with the pedal steel for a while and was playing it on Looks Like Rain, um, you know, maybe one or two other songs, but then basically stopped because it was a pain in the ass to take around and it required a whole lot of practice. And, um, you know, Jerry wasn't, I guess, necessarily into that. But here it is in 87. All of a sudden they play a tune. The pedal steel shows up and, uh, you know, Jerry just goes out there and, and, and plays the hell out of it with it. And uh, again, it's another one of those tunes that if you really listen to the whole way through, uh, it gets it gets featured throughout the entire song. Um, and, and, you know, there's Jerry. He's back in this guy and says, hey, you know, I'm a multi-talented guitarist and I'm going to pull out this instrument. And uh, the crowd really loved it. And it, it just added a whole new element to I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, a song from the John Wesley Harding album, which was released back in December of 1967. Uh, and again, you put the dead behind Dylan and the song sounds brand new. It sounds really fresh. It sounds really exciting. And uh, I, I think the crowd really, really dug it and re really, really appreciated it. And uh, it, it just, you know, one of those moments where you say, oh, the dead's going to be the backup. But all of a sudden they're, they're musicians first and foremost. Uh, and they sure showed it, uh, you know, throughout this tour playing with Dylan, uh, especially on that song with Jerry playing uh, that just amazing instrument that's just so beautiful to listen to. Um, last week, Dead & Company played three shows at Folsom Field, uh, which uh, I would have to say may have been, uh, uh, you know, three of the most interesting uh, Dead & Company shows played throughout their tenure. You know, and as we say, here they are, you know, kind of in their home stretch. They've announced that this is, this is it after this tour, and they're only down really to a couple of stops left now, but they came out at Folsom Field. I was lucky enough to see them there dead and company a few years ago never caught the dead there Folsom field is just as beautiful as you would imagine college football stadium in the middle of campus with the mountains right there and uh really really a, a great place to see them and uh, had a lot of fun when i was able to go out there uh with friend of the show and and marijuana guy bob hoban uh and with steve and um and uh, uh the rest of our crew and uh, Patrick and everybody else. And we just had a great time and uh, they came out and they were playing. And of course, uh, good friends, Alex and Andy, Andy, Andy never slows down. Uh, she's everywhere. And, and they, they go out to, to Boulder for a while during the summer and they got out there in enough time to see uh, these shows, you know, and Alex and I would always sit and talk around about, yeah, you're going to really go see dead and company. Yeah. I talked to him after Wrigley field. I was like, look, you know, it was fun. They're, they're playing strong, but you go to shows because as with anything else, uh, you never know. Uh, what you might miss. And on July 3rd, uh, the uh, Monday show at Folsom Field, the last of the three, uh, everybody's patience, uh, everybody's uh, energy and devotion was well rewarded as Dave Matthews stepped out right near the very end of the second set and joined the band for a run through of all along the watchtower to not fade away and knocking on heaven's door. And, um, and then the wait. You know, and look, I make no bones about this, and we've talked about this on the show before. I have never been a huge fan of Dave Matthews or his band. Um, I don't say that to diss the man. I recognize he's exceptionally talented. Uh, all all of these musicians love playing with him. Trey's played with him a lot. Uh, here's you know Bobby and the boys reaching out to him to to have him come join them on stage. So you know the fact that that's happening is certainly good enough for me. And I, and I would be thrilled and uh, love the opportunity, you know, anytime a guest comes out, but especially a guy like Dave Matthews. And what was interesting to me listening to it, because I, I wasn't there. Um, I was listening to all along the watchtower. Now that's a song that Dave Matthews plays pretty regularly in his band. And he's played it with Tedeschi trucks and uh, he's played it, uh, you know, a number of times. And so of course that was a perfect matchup uh, for him and the dead because they were playing it a lot. And, uh, but as, as I was listening to it, I was really almost amazed to hear that the band, uh, Dead and Company, you know, instead of uh, um, Dave Matthews joining them and, you know, kind of 
fitting into the the Dead's version of it. Dead and Company was playing it closer to Dave Matthews' version of it. And, uh, you know, again, it's an interesting version. For me, it's a little too dramatic, a little too long. And, and, and you wind up, for me, what's the best part of the song, really using like this this cutting energy in it, um, which I think was, you know, part of the message that uh, Dylan was sending when he wrote the tune. Uh, clearly, Jerry and Bobby loved it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, it's a song that a lot of, uh, uh, great musicians played. Jimi Hendrix made it his own, of course. Um, but there was Dave, you know, up on stage playing it with him. And, you know, again, it, it, it wasn't necessarily the way I would want to hear it played. Uh, but I give Dave Matthews credit for doing it. I give the dead credit for, you know, kind of being able to uh, adjust ourself a little bit uh, to be able to play it with them. And then the rest of the tunes, you know, Not Fade Away is very standard. But, you know, again, it's, it's always fun when you mix it up a little bit and have them on stage. Um, not going to have in store. The Wait, all great tunes. Uh, that were all very easily uh, where Dave could step in and, and accompany the band. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, if you, if you really think about it, uh, none of these were Grateful Dead written tunes, uh, right? They were playing tunes that they played regularly, certainly, uh, but they weren't their tunes necessarily. And, and I maybe that was done for, for Dave's convenience and to make it easier for him. Maybe these were just the tunes they were going to play and it just worked out that way. But I found it interesting that, uh, that, you know, those are the particular songs that he joined them with. Because, you know, it would be interesting to hear a guy like, you know, Dave Matthews on, say, Sugar Magnolia playing with the band. Or, you know, any one of a number of other songs where he could have fit in on, on, on you know, what we would call pure dead tunes. Uh, but these were great. And um, uh, Alex and Andy gave it thumbs up. And if they give it a thumbs up, that's more than good enough for me. Uh, but, but in addition to the music... Uh, they were really, really creative at this show, right? So this was in Colorado, uh, in Boulder, and uh, in July of this year. So it's very hot, very dry. Uh, everybody is concerned about forest fires. And so the, the, the rule in Colorado this year was no fireworks. Nobody wanted any fireworks being shot off. And, you know, for the dead, fireworks are like almost second nature. You know, you can get them on the 4th of July, but there's nights when you could go see the dead and just get them anyway. Uh, but there was going to be no fireworks at this show. So what did they do? Well, the, the dead crew and uh, whoever they, they, they brought on board to do this with them, uh, they came up with a, a project where they used, I don't have any idea how many drones it was, but they got the drones up in the air, lit them up in red, white, and blue, and then created amazing visuals like the Steal Your Face logo. And uh, you can go online and check it out. Uh, you know, from the drones presentations at this show, and you're looking at the Steal Your Face logo up in the sky, uh, and it looks just like it. I mean, absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, and, and they, they had the dancing bears, and they had other stuff, and just, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense, right? Um, um, you know, from a uh, from a uh, mechanical and uh, technical point of view that, that we've gotten to the point now where, you know, people who know how to do it are capable of, of creating drones, drone images these way, this way. But, uh, you know, the picture of it was just amazing. And uh, talking to Andy and Alex about how cool it was to be there and, and really see it. Uh, boy, uh, I hats off to them, uh, to the dead and their people and whoever helped them put this up. Uh, just amazing. And, you know, really makes you wonder, you know, back in the day when Jerry and the boys were playing, if they had this technology at the time, because uh, they were, you know, they were they were always on the cutting edge of of this kind of technology, you know, to to present to the crowds uh, with the lights and the sound and and everything. That it just makes you wonder uh, what their genius minds could have done with uh, with drones back in the day, and, and what they could have done. And you know, think about a couple of deadheads being there, you know, tripping your way through the show, and all of a sudden up in the sky, <laughs> you're seeing this stuff, and uh, it, it's really a lot of fun. Um, and, and I admire their creativity for doing it. You know, I wish they would have done it in Chicago, but, uh, I'm glad that they got to see it out there. And, uh, the significance now, uh, for those keeping score at home is that dead and company is now, uh, well, they just played the gorge, uh, this past weekend. And now that's this coming Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at Oracle park in San Francisco, the giants home stadium for those who have trouble keeping up with the ever changing names of ballparks. Thanks to corporate, thanks to corporate funding. Um, but that's it, right? Three shows in Oracle Park. Uh, and then who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what's going to happen at those shows? You know, if, if Boulder was a taste of anything, uh, you know, that are going to be back in their in, in their home uh, territory, basically, if you will, where it all kind of started, Dead & Co., uh, for the Grateful Dead way back in the day. And 
I'm just curious to see, are there going to be more guests, uh, more unannounced guests who are going to come out and play with them? Are there going to be more drone shows? Are there, I, I suspect we're going to see something because they've, they've made it a real point to let everybody know that these are their final shows. Um, so why not go out in a blaze of glory and, uh, and, and really do it upright? And everybody says, well, what happens after that? And my answer is, I have no idea. I'm not even sure that, that Bobby or Mickey or even Phil, you know, if any of them have any idea what comes next and, you know, how we're going to all see them uh, and if we'll ever see them again in any kind of a, uh, you know, a band format with, with, you know, more than one of them. And that makes it hard because, you know, the, there's only four to begin with left. Um, so, you know, I suppose in that respect, this really does kind of mark a, uh, a watershed moment for the guys. Um, but I, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to see the, the Dead & Company era closing, other than the fact, uh, like we've talked about before, that it was just great to be able to go out and, and see them in concert and be part of the whole Deadhead scene again and all of that. And it really has me wondering, you know, is there a chance that, you know, Phil could rejoin the mix? Is there a chance that, you know, other famous people can be brought in for, six months of touring or whatever and we'll have to wait and find out and that's the beauty of uh that's the beauty of the dead they always keep you guessing until they don't and you know if the bus happens to roll through again even if it looks like it's a little bit run down or old i'm sure we'll all be rushing to get our place on board and uh and seeing what else they can do so uh next week we'll probably give out a little bit of a recap of um of the end and, and certainly be able to update on any cool or unique things that they did at the shows um, you know, and then we'll go back to our tapes and everything else and, uh, and, and sit around and hope for the best for them. So, uh, uh, you know, that, that's always the problem with these things. And, you know, on the one hand, while, uh, you know, there's certainly, it's nice to have the certainty, you know, on the other hand, I can see where for people, um, and any real, you know, dead who likes the whole scene that anytime some group of it stops, uh, you know, it always makes you wonder, are we done here? Is this it? Do we have any chance ever again of seeing anything more um and i'm going to be positive and be a glass half full guy uh, and say you know the frequency with which they were touring the way bobby looks and sounds um you know th th there's more life in these guys on one level or another and we'll just have to see what it is but uh, congratulations to them uh, great Folsom field shows uh, i'm sure the shows at the gorge were wonderful and uh and then this is it back to san francisco home sweet home and then call it a day But now, back to 1987, because this is where we find ourselves talking about the Grateful Dead and, and all of this stuff about retiring and coming to a close as many years in the future as we're uh, at these shows and enjoying them. So we're, we're not thinking about that stuff. Uh, and this next track I want to play right now uh, really turned out to be, has really turned out to be uh, one of my favorite Dylan tunes. Joey, um, from the Desire album released in January of 1976, is really an epic story song uh, that Dylan wrote. And he wrote it with uh, Jacques Levy, who collaborated with Dylan on most of the songs on the Desire album. And like another long song on the album and another one of my favorites, Hurricane, the story of Reuben Carter, Wrongful Conviction, Joey's biographical song. It tells the story of the life and death of a mobster, Joey Gallo, who was killed on his birthday at Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy on April 7th, 1972. Um, 
Dylan, you know, just plucking things out of the news and sitting down and writing these amazing songs. You can write a song about the death of a mobster and apparently never have to worry about them getting upset about it. But the, the song's overall legacy, I guess, you know, remains mixed. Um, USA once had USA Today once had an article ranking all of Bob Dylan's songs, and they called this one forgettable. Uh, they uh, lamented that it had made it onto the album in the first place. Uh, but in a reader's poll later conducted in uh, in Mojo, Joey was actually rated the 74th most popular Bob Dylan song at the time of all time. But that may sound like it's, you know, a little bit farther away from the top. But I don't know the total number of Dylan songs has, but I'm I'm sure this probably puts it in the top third. Um, and so, you know, uh, people like it. I heard it for the first time uh, listening to uh, the uh, um, uh, Dead and Dead. Uh, Dylan and the Dead album uh, that came out in 1988, uh, which was basically the uh, uh, featured all the songs from this July 1987 tour and a lot of great songs on that uh, uh, album that I really got into. But Joey was one that really stood out. I, I like the way he tells the story. I like the way he sings it. I love the way that, uh, you know, Jerry uh, harmonizes with him on the vocals and you, you know, can hear their two voices two just very distinctive rock and roll voices. And, you know, it's, it's, it's just wonderful and amazing to have them up there collaborating uh, this way. Um, and here's a, a great story that, that follows up on one that we talked about on earlier shows. Uh, Jerry, who was responsible for getting Dylan to start performing it live in 1987. And you'll recall the episode we had a, a month or so ago where we talked about uh, Dylan going to the, the, the first uh, rehearsal sessions for this tour and walking in and, and kind of freaking out about maybe, you know, was he going to be able to play with the dead? Was he going to be able to keep up with the dead? He wanted to play a few certain tunes the way he did it. And the dead were really pushing him to, you know, to go back in his catalog and, and, and pull songs out. And this is one of them. So uh, Garcia, you know, uh, Dylan admits Garcia got him to start performing it live in 87. Jerry considered it a great song himself. Uh, and, and Dylan even characterized it as, Homeric. Uh, when discussing his Nobel Prize in Literature, I always love saying that next to Bob Dylan's name, uh, when he was uh, discussing it with Edna Gunderson in 2016, uh, critic Paul Zolo, writing in American Songwriter magazine, called it a beautifully detailed and cinematic song and a masterpiece. So, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to acquire a taste for a song uh, before people really truly appreciate it. But I love Joey and uh, can listen to it all the time. And, you know, this is one of those moments where you just all can really appreciate, uh, you know, Jerry making these pushes to get these songs played, you know, in the manner that uh, uh, that, that Dylan was telling us. And, and thank God that he did, because it would be a real shame to have missed out on uh, on a song like this. And, you know, I like to think that that just inspired Dylan, you know, to do all sorts of things and, you know, playing with the jet with uh, the dead, you know, revitalized him in some ways. And Joey's just a great song. And I'm glad uh that he brought it back and we all got to hear it. Now, moving on uh, to a little more music. Uh, a week or two ago, July 2nd of this month, uh, my good buddy Rob here in Chicago, uh, who I try to go to concerts with whenever we can, he and I are each other's uh, you know constant uh, music companions and uh, we've gone and seen it all. And uh, whenever a, a really big act is coming through, we try to get it. And sometimes I'm turning him on to new stuff. And sometimes he's turning me on to new stuff. And I don't want to really say that I had never heard of Les Claypool and the Frog Brigade before, because I had, uh, but I just hadn't given it enough time and attention. It just came across my radar as, you know, more of this kind of jam bandy um, uh, culture and, and, and environment. And I, I certainly knew Les Claypool was out there. I certainly know, uh, you know, he, he's done a lot and very, very exceptionally talented, but I had never seen him live. So uh, back on July 2nd, Rob and I went to the, back to the Salt Shed in Chicago. Uh, I will now say that uh, they've mellowed out a little bit and everybody gets in and out without too much trouble, bringing along whatever they want or need to make the evening fun and exciting. So off we went. We sat upstairs this time, which was my first time off the floor. And uh, of course, obviously, duh, it makes a huge difference. <laughs> you know, even a guy like me who's 6'1 sometimes winds up with a guy who's 6'2 in front of me. And obviously, people shorter than I always have a hard time seeing. And the sound, you can't really sit down. We're old. Um, and sitting upstairs was wonderful. The seats, we had more than enough room. You could get up and dance. You could sit down. You could do whatever you wanted. And it was just absolutely great. Um, uh, the, the, the show opened, the night opened with a band called the Budos Band. 
B-U-D-O-S, who I'd never heard of. Uh, the three primary musicians are horn players, and then they have, you know, more or less a regular rock band behind them. It's all instrumental. There's no lyrics. Uh, and Rob had heard them before, and he was excited about it. And they came out and really got the evening off on a strong note, playing about a 45-minute set and, and really laying it out there. Uh, and then we're all sitting around waiting, and uh, lights go out, and out comes Les Claypool. And what do they do? <laughs> they open with a cover of King Crimson's Thielahan Ganjit. Uh, and you know, whenever they do that, it's you're in for a good night. Um, it, it, it's a tremendous tune. Uh, King Crimson's always a lot of fun. And it's great to hear musicians like Les Claypool, who are such detailed musicians, aren't just playing it. They're, they're, they're really playing it. They're capturing their song uh, and the way it's played and, and, and really conveying it well. Uh, and it's just always fun to hear anybody <laughs> cover King Crimson. Um, then uh, after that, uh, the Frog Brigade uh, went into songs that were uh, um, mostly theirs. Uh, we were all enjoying the scene and uh, having a good time. And then probably about 30, 45 minutes into it, they stopped playing for a moment, reorganized. Uh, and then I have to say, created one of the best rock experiences of my life and absolutely blew us away with a uh, cover to cover cover <laughs> Uh, their version of the entire Pink Floyd album, Animals, which was released back in January of 1977. Uh, the entire album, start to finish, uh, and then eventually wound up playing more Frog Brigade, and it was a fun night for all. But the, I, I can't even begin to describe how amazing the Animals was. I've uh, seen uh, Warren Haynes and, his, and Government Mule do Dark Side of the Mule. That's, a, that's an awesome album, and, and, and they can really cover that one well. But Animals was such a such a great Pink Floyd album because there's so much great jamming in it. And, uh, you know, the, the music isn't quite as deep as some of their earlier stuff. And, uh, you know, maybe not quite as uh, light, you might say, you know, in some of its uh, later stuff. But on this one, they just make a lot of animal noises and and, and, and jam out. And, and the, the lyrics that there are throughout it are, are, are fun. And, it, you know, these guys had done it before. I was not aware of that, I have to say. And uh, my buddy Rob, uh, I guess, decided he was aware and he just thought it would be fun to see my reaction. And I looked at him. He said, yep, you're not hearing things. Uh, and it was it was just amazing. We had such a great time listening to that. Uh, it made me come home that night at whatever time I got home and put the Animals album on uh, and listen to it again from start to finish. Uh, just because once I had the, you know, the music bug in my ear, I, I couldn't walk away from it quite that fast and, uh, you know, wanted to hear Pink Floyd do it and, and was so pleasantly uh, surprised, if you will, that uh, to see just how well Les Claypool and the Frog Brigade really got their version of it. Um, and it's it's out now. You can find it anywhere. And, and of course, this isn't the first time they've done it. So uh, there's all sorts of YouTube clips out there uh, from from this tour that are that are highlighting uh, various nights when they play. But if you can get the one from the Salt Shed, uh, obviously biased and I was there, but I, I can't imagine uh, how it could have been played any better than they played it that night. And, you know, you just kind of get a sense. And, and I think it's great to start from the very beginning of the show, right? Because you're, you're there to see a particular guy. And, um, and, and I will say this about Les Claypool that, that really amazed me. I knew he was a bass player. I knew he was a good bass player. What I didn't know was that he plays the bass like it's a lead guitar. And, and I, he was right up in front the whole night playing that thing. And it kind of reminded me of like of Mike Gordon on the introduction to Weekapog Groove, where he stands up in front for a minute and, you know, really lets loose on the bass while the rest of them kind of take a step back. And I, I've always really liked that because I'm a big fan of the bass. Who doesn't love Phil and, and what he did with the instrument? But there's some great bass players out there. And, and you know, not surprising to know that they're not all named Phil Lesh. And, and some of these guys just do exceptional things with that instrument. And Les Claypool is definitely one of them. And uh, the music that he and his band created was just superb. Uh, very excited to have a chance to see them again. They're going to be back in the fall, and uh, we're already talking about going out and, and catching them one more time. Uh, I've never seen Primus. Now I feel like I have to go see them. And I've never been lucky enough to see Oysterhead, uh, but uh, maybe uh, someday they will come back and be touring again, and I'll have a chance to go see them and see a whole bunch of legends all at once. Um, so, yeah, you know, the the, the, the great music rolls on. Uh, like I said, we have fish coming here in October. We're very excited about that. And, you know, we'll find things between now and then uh, to keep us busy on the live music scene. Uh, Rob is always good at finding something fun to go to. Uh, so we'll see. But uh, 
yeah, Les Claypool and the Frog Brigade doing Animals is is clearly a concert highlight for me. I'm, I'm always a big fan of great covers, unexpected covers, and this checked all the boxes. So thanks to Rob for getting the tickets and, and taking me along. Thanks to Les Claypool and his band for laying out just a tremendous show. And if you haven't seen it yet and he's coming anywhere near you, I would highly, highly, highly recommend uh, that you make an effort to go out there and hear this music because it's, it's just that good. And I think uh, at the end of the day, you'll really just be uh, that impressed with just how well they do. Let's uh, um, go back, I think, and uh, focus one more time on uh, the dead backing uh, Bob Dylan. And here's a song we just got done talking about. And so it's it's perfect time to play it. So we just got done talking about Watchtower. Uh, when the Dead started playing it um, in 1987, so just re- literally a month before this show, exactly a month before this show for people who love this kind of thing, June 10th, 1987, at the Greek was the first time uh, that the Dead played all along the Watchtower. Uh, they played it all the way up until the, the end, uh, almost the end, June 22nd, 95, at Knickerbocker Arena in Albany. And they obviously love this tune. Um, uh, the dead do they played it a lot rockers love this tune we talk about dave matthews playing it we talk about Jimi hendrix playing it uh you know this was also from john wesley harding so it came out in 67 and you know within a year or two uh jimmy had his version out there that was probably the primary version at that time that everybody listened to and and really you know got to know the song from uh until we started hearing the dead playing it and it's it's great to hear Dylan play it. It's his song. He plays it and, you know, interprets the way and, and sings it the way he wants to. Um, but again, how wonderful to have the dead. Listen to Jerry's guitar just ripping there. Uh, you know, he's he's up on stage. He's psyched. He's playing with a guy who he idolizes. And, you know, this is just a tremendous experience for everybody. And, and I, you know, I just love the song. And I will say this, it very much makes me appreciate Bob Weir's uh, voice and lyrics when he sings it. Cause I think Bobby, uh, for me really kind of, you know, nailed the song, you know, not quite as, as out there as Jimmy, um, but certainly more structured, uh, with, with, the uh, um, lyrics better enunciated, uh, than Bob Dylan, but it didn't matter who's playing it. Uh, cause even Dylan can rock to it. And, uh, you know, just another really fun song for them, one that was perfect for them to play, given uh, the Dead's experience with it. Dylan has always liked the tune. And uh, again, the chance to hear them playing together and hear Dylan really singing it but with Jerry and the boys rocking out behind him was just wonderful. And these are the things that make these kind of mashups so special, right? Is that, you know, we've had large numbers of of shows talking about guest performers with the Dead and everything like that. Um, But you'd be really, really hard pressed, I think, uh, you know, to find two musical acts that existed for so long that, that were so influential uh, in, in rock and roll and who had so much respect for one another, right? We're, we've been talking lately about even now, 40 years later, uh, Dylan is breaking out dead tunes all over his world tour. You know, this guy with a catalog with hundreds of tunes, and he's reaching in and pulling out some dead tunes. Uh, he always speaks very respectfully of Jerry and Bobby and all of them. And of course, you know, they all couldn't get enough of Dylan 
And you know what? That it, it's just really, really cool to be able to say, you know, we saw him together, that we heard him together, and uh, wonderful stuff. It, it, you know, and what's amazing is that Dylan is still out there. Um, you know, maybe uh, not quite as much as he used to, and uh, definitely with a voice these days that makes the voice at these shows, you know, sound like a soprano uh, by comparison. Um, but it was it was a wonderful rock and roll experience uh, that that the Dead and Dylan were able to put together. Uh, they really pleased and uh, uh, so many of these fans, Deadheads and and all music fans, uh, for that month when they were when they were playing together. And again, Dylan and the Dead is a great album. If you, if you don't have it, I would highly recommend it because it gives you a chance to hear a number of the songs they were playing from this tour. And again, some of them are back catalog Dylan tunes, and it's just really great to hear them brought out and to hear um you know again jerry as bill dylan told us you know kind of revitalized him to reach back and play some of these songs and thank god that he did and uh you know thank god we have the ability to see them and to hear them again and uh, all just very enjoyable so the dead uh closed out uh, dylan and the dead closed out this second set and then they all went backstage and we thought okay well there's going to be an encore what's it going to be what are they going to play and uh you know interestingly after this whole night of stuff uh the show's encore was touch of gray now touch of gray had not yet been officially released it was on the in the dark album uh well actually i should say it had been officially released uh because it was released on july 6 1987 so just four days before the show uh the album with touch of gray came out now the deadheads already knew it well we've talked about how the dead started playing it uh, in concert towards the very end of 1982 i heard it in april of 1983 in morgantown west virginia um so at this point uh, it was known by the deadheads but it was not really known to the general public it you know it, it was so new that any airplay had been getting on fm radio uh again was only just in the last couple of days um and so the good news is uh we had not yet gotten to that um phase that hit later on in the 80s and the 90s uh, with all the crazy crowd problems that that ultimately got so bad that uh, you know the dead had a threat to shut down if if the deadheads you know didn't start behaving and if more importantly the folks that weren't deadheads but were just looking to hang out and party uh you know couldn't control themselves yet uh, but at this point in time uh you know if you were there and you weren't already a fan of the dead you know you probably hearing touch of gray for the very first time uh and you know it, it, it obviously like all dead tunes it's so different between how they play it first time i heard it on the radio it, i was really laughing because it almost sounded you know popish and you know the, the way that they were doing it and uh and that touch but in concert obviously they were tearing it in this point uh you know it was so new that the jerry basically had the lyrics down really well and wasn't really screwing that up very much yet uh like he tended to do um and so, you know, it was, it was just great. You know, at the end of the day, this is the Grateful Dead. And, uh, you know, they started the show for their fans. They ended the show for their fans. And um, it, it, it was a lot of fun, uh, you know, to see that. And uh, Dylan, Jerry, Touch of Grey, you know, it, it, it just speaks to, uh, you know, where things were at and where they were going. So all in all, it was a fun show. Um Great Dead, lots of really good Dylan, fun collaboration and enjoyable for the Deadheads. And I think just something that uh, was great to see. And we're just happy when we get these mashups and uh, have an opportunity, uh, you know, to see that kind of thing. So um, Dylan and the Dead, definitely check it out. And uh, I think that you will find that you enjoy it very much um, and that it is just great, great stuff. So uh, before uh, we totally get away here for the day, um, it is the Deadhead Cannabis Show. So let's dive into some cannabis for a minute. I didn't come here and I ain't leaving, so don't sit around and cry. Just roll me up and smoke me when I die. Thank you, Dan. Uh, we very much appreciate that. Uh, keeping things fresh on the show, and uh, and that's uh, that's great stuff. Um, so the thing is, is that uh, the wonderful state of Missouri, uh, my lovely home state here, um, is, well, I've talked about Missouri, and I've talked about how uh, uh, frustrating it could be sometimes to tell people uh, that you come from Missouri, their, their politics are not necessarily politics uh, with which I always line up on. But, you know, 
they've they've really blown me away in terms of what they've done with marijuana for such a you know relatively speaking conservative state. Um, and again, this is one of those moments when uh, I find myself proud to be a Missourian, uh, apart from some of the other politics that, that tend to come out of the state and folks like Josh Hawley and people like that, who we're not going to talk about because we're here today to have fun and talk about good, good stuff. But um, yeah, Missouri marijuana businesses will have fewer obstacles now when it comes to accessing banking. Missouri Governor Mike Parsons, who I am no fan of, uh, he signed a bill uh, that is going to try to improve the ability for banks in Missouri uh, to be able to do business with people in the marijuana industry. Um, in order to do it, though, the, the, the owners of the marijuana businesses are going to have to get a fingerprint background check uh, for all of their new employees and contractors. Now, we already need this in Illinois, um, but uh, this, was, this was part of a wide-ranging public safety bill that allows the Missouri Department of Health and Senior Services, which oversees the state's marijuana program, to share inspections and other information banks need to be able to vet and ultimately serve their cannabis businesses. Now, the state agency didn't have this authority previously, and banks have been have been repeating the work that the, the department has already done to meet federal guidelines, something that not all banks are equipped for or financed for or really had uh, any desire to do whatsoever. Uh, one of the founders of Triad Bank in uh, Missouri, uh, J- Jim Regna, told them that uh, in lieu of doing their own inspections, it would be very helpful for the bankers to be able to get this information directly from the Department of Health and Senior Services uh, to make the banking program fluid and to make sure, again, how important it is for these banks. People don't understand the risks that they're taking servicing this industry and how real the threats of money laundering are to them if everything isn't done just exactly right, a big part of which is knowing your customer as a bank manager, knowing who you're doing business with and uh, uh, making sure uh, that everything is is works out the way it's supposed to and that you're not violating any rules and you're not possibly facing uh, any jail time. Uh, now, it is true that people are worried that the fingerprinting requirement could slow down the process uh, of getting new cannabis employees into work. And, and the, Missouri is seeing a huge surge right now uh, in, in job growth for the um, uh, for the cannabis industry, whereas a lot of other states, we've been in country on you know, Canada, we've been reading about cannabis businesses laying off people in Missouri. Right now, it's exactly the opposite. And uh, you know, I just have to say again, as a Missouri resident, it's great to see. I really appreciate that. Um, uh, while I'm down here this time, I'm making a point of swinging by one of the dispensaries to check it out and uh, you know see how they do and and what they're all about. But you know, kudos to Missouri and. Uh, uh, hopefully other states are going to join this push and try and figure out a way to work with banks so that we don't have to sit around and wait for the federal government to uh, play all their political games, Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. I want credit. You want credit. It doesn't get done. Uh, you can almost just hear Rob Hunt shaking his head and saying, nope, 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 nope. Um, so, but we'll see. And uh, again, hats off to Missouri and Parsons for getting this one right. And I, I hope that other states uh, copy this and that the feds get the picture and that they're ready to move on. Well, we're running out of time here, and uh, we had a great uh, dead show to talk about, great experiences uh, with Bob Dylan, uh, which always makes anything fun every time we get a chance uh, to hear him or or put the two of them together, and that's just great. But this summer, uh, there's been so much great music going on around everywhere and so many wonderful things going on uh, that as I'm getting ready to close out here, we're going to shift uh, a basis for a minute and, and, and talk about our good friends, Goose. Uh, and now Goose is, you know, the, the, the jam band du jour and really the jam band on the rise. And, and like Fish was, you know, the next coming after the Grateful Dead. I think it seems pretty clear that Goose is the ones that are going to follow Fish. Uh, at least for now, all signs point to that. Obviously, nobody knows what could happen down the road, but uh, there's no reason to believe it, it won't be them. And they've gotten to the point now where they're so well known for their music and their songs are well known and they've really established themselves in that regard that they kind of have the luxury every now and then of being able to pick up uh, music from another band and cover it. So we're going to get to that in one second. I just want to, before we sign off, just really quickly go over one or two more things. Next week, uh, we are scheduled to have Charlie Miller on the show as a guest. If you don't know Charlie Miller, you will after this show, and you can go look him up. Really just go to archive.org, and, and you'll see his name. He's the guy who's been remastering so many of the, the tapes that these archives hold so that uh, deadheads young and old and well into the future will all have the benefit of not just being able to access Grateful Dead music, but really good Grateful Dead music with really, really good sound uh, that somebody you know just made the effort to do 
for other people like like anybody else in, in the deadhead community we all play a part uh in, in keeping it going forward however big or small it might be and uh charlie miller is is right there on it uh, uh rob hunt will be joining us as well he knows charlie and uh, it'll be interesting to hear uh some of the exchanges that they have on all of this and of course when it comes to electronics and taping and stuff like that rob's a bigger nerd on it than i am so uh, i'm very happy that he'll be joining us then but we should have a great show next week uh, and we hope you will uh, uh, all enjoy it uh and and plan to look in so as we as we sign off now officially uh we're going to go to see goose at the stone pony summer stage in asbury park new jersey of course bruce springsteen's home and uh they they fourth of july and what better tune for them to come out and cover than u.s blues uh i have no doubt that uh, at some point they can make it their own this version you'll see sounds a little too much like the album maybe um although i give them credit for covering the dead not banning bands will do that calling fish out there so uh this is two weeks in a row ending with this tune but this is the one goose covered and uh, all in all it's not a bad deal so thank you everyone for listening today i have a great week be safe enjoy goose and enjoy your cannabis responsibly listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, y'all. I'm Joe, host of Casually Baked the Podcast. If you're curious to explore the highly responsible side of cannabis, farming, and legalization, I'm here to help lighten the stigma and build your can of confidence. Download episodes now of Casually Baked the Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And journey with me through the evolving cannabis culture and discover how and why people like you are adding cannabis to their wellness toolkit. It's time to get casually baked.